And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. That isn't likely to change. Here I read and discuss comics about Marvel's man without fear, Daredevil, even when he is a guest star in somebody else's book. Though this is one of the last times I have to say that for a while, as we wrap up our tour of Spider-Man Country this week with the final installment of the Death of Gene DeWolf story. Before jumping back into that, let's take a look where we have been. The story began with police captain and Spider-Man supporting character Jean DeWolf getting shot to death in her own bed by a killer known as the Sin Eater. Sin Eater also killed Matt Murdock's friend and mentor, Judge Horace Rosenthal. While both Spider-Man and Daredevil have been tracking the killer, they have been using notably different tactics and mindsets. Daredevil has been more slow and steady, resulting in moments of being too late, such as the death of Rosenthal and the failure to point out Sin Eater at the funerals of his victims. Through all of this, and because of a red herring in the form of a man who mistakenly believed that he actually was the Sin Eater, Daredevil and Spidey finally teamed up and discovered the identity of the killer, Police Sergeant Stan Carter, the lead detective in the Sin Eater investigation. This posed a problem. The red herring Sin Eater believed that he heard voices commanding him to kill, but in reality it was Stan dictating his actions into a tape recorder. Because of this, the heroes know that Sin Eater's next victim was to be Daily Bugle publisher J. Jonah Jameson, who was out of town at a conference with fellow reporter Ned Leeds. But Jameson and Leeds' wives, Marla Jameson and Betty Brant Leeds respectively, are at the Jameson house, meaning they are now the targets. And as last issue wrapped up, Sin Eater had arrived aiming his gun at Betty Brant as she spoke on the phone to a frantic Spider-Man who was trying to warn her. But it seemed too late as the issue ended with Sin Eater blasting his gun at Betty, leaving nothing but an office chair shredded by buckshot. This is where we pick up with Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man issue number 110, the January 1986 issue. The comic hit stands with a cover by Rich Buckler and Joseph Rubenstein. This one packs a punch in its simple, straightforward premise. Spider-Man in his black costume punches Daredevil, sending the Man Without Fear backwards through a shattering window. This cover is so kinetic that it's almost alive. The motion here, the illusion of motion to be more accurate, sells it. The punch is so harsh it makes my own stomach hurt for Daredevil's abs. The flying glass shards adds this chaotic element, and the design of Spider-Man's mask, something that is essentially static itself, lends itself to the webhead's fury. He actually looks like he is scowling. And we see covers all the time with characters posturing about how they're about to to fight, they're about to face each other, great platitudes of things like reluctance or being the target of another character's vengeance, but this is none of that. It's an unbridled bit of pure, over-the-top ferocity, with the impact, literal and figurative, clearly in the reader's face. And unlike the similar pose that Spider-Man had in issue 108, Daredevil is off to the right rather than the center, so the eye is naturally drawn to the punch itself rather than the gooch. 
Mark this down. This is the moment where a punch to the solar plexus is preferable to a shot of somebody's taint. Not sure how I feel about that, honestly. Moving into the story itself, entitled The Death of Gene DeWolf Conclusion, All My Sins Remembered, we find a tale once again written by Peter David and penciled by Rich Buckler. And, as before, multiple inkers, to the extent that they're just listed here as M. Hands, helped with art finishes. The entire tale can be found reprinted in any version of The Death of Gene DeWolf trade paperback. Available through the link at twotruefreaks.com. Getting down to business, we open to Daredevil and Spider-Man swinging across New York toward the Jameson household where Betty Brant may well be dead at the Sin Eater's hand. And Spider-Man is just leaving Daredevil in the dust. And this isn't just Spider-Strength, it's pure rage that speeds Spidey along, or at least pure emotion. As he swings, Spider-Man looks back on his relationship with Betty, a character who debuted in Amazing Spider-Man number 4 as J. Jonah Jameson's Girl Friday. We see the negative aspects of the relationship in these few panels, Betty being shocked by Peter being a jerk, and granted he was intentionally pushing her away for her protection, emotional and physical, and then a shot of Peter and Betty sitting, awkwardly and silently, at a table. A clear sign of distance. Not only are these shots Ditko homages in style, but they show something more. They are cast on the right side of a page, with the left showing Peter swinging and giving a bit of narration to the single images. But Peter's thoughts aren't on the good times, not prominently. These are moments where Spider-Man is casting a long, dark shadow over the romance between these two. And I'm going to go on record here before I get too much further along, and just state that these two would have been somewhat doomed from the start, even if you omit the Spider-Man factor. Betty, despite being close to Peter's age, had dropped out of high school to take the Daily Bugle job since her mother had died, and Betty wasn't just supporting herself, her brother had huge gambling debts to the wrong people, which was what led to Brant's mother, Eleanor, getting in the way of some mobsters. With permanent brain damage from the altercation, Eleanor Brant eventually died, leaving only the medical bills, which also fell on Betty's shoulders. I say all of this not just as general background, but also to say that Betty had a lot of Well, I won't call it baggage, that's not fair. But she came with a lot more complexity to her than Peter would have carried. Spider-Man notwithstanding, take Spider-Man off the table and Betty would be a hard person for Peter to understand or relate to, because she kept a lot of those problems close to her chest. Peter would have been out of his depth, with no way to relate, and the relationship would have ended very badly. Worse than it actually did end, if it even began to begin with. Bringing it back to the book, the idea that Betty is not only Peter's first love, but also had that rough background, something Peter couldn't fix in his perfectionist nature, and add the fact that these two are still close friends, well, this goes beyond personal. And this takes us into a deeper range of emotions for Peter, almost like Spidey himself has been targeted. And the cherry on top is that Peter knows that this is Stan Carter who was duping him. I would not want to be the Sin Eater, because the muzzle is off of Spider-Man and he's about to go all roadhouse on Sin Eater's ass. 
However, as Peter is making his way to Jameson's, we check in there first, before they arrive and Betty is still alive having ducked. Okay, we've established that the Sin Eater uses a scattergun, so this must be an adamantium desk Betty is hiding behind, and Betty must be using a Terrigen Mist Inhaler to give her super speed. There were only a few seconds between Sin Eater arriving and blammo! <laughs> Chalk it up to a plot device and accept that Betty needed to live, but suspense had to be on display at the end of last issue to end it correctly. As the Sin Eater tries to rectify his mistake, Marla runs out the door, though we don't find that out until later. Thanks for nothing, Marla. Sin Eater is manhandling Betty, placing a gun long ways across her throat, and pushing her down and then... Bond villain monologue time. Sin Eater explains his reasons for the victims that he has killed. To begin with, J. Jonah Jameson found himself on the list for his opposition to masked vigilantes. Which is odd, because I'm thinking to myself, didn't Sin Eater take a shot at Spider-Man just two issues ago? Granted, Jameson uses his power, the power of the press and the ability to sway public opinion, to gripe and complain about Spider-Man, the menace. But Sin Eater didn't seem to mind capping Spidey. The priest was killed because he opposed capital punishment. This is consistent with the reason that Judge Rosenthal was killed. He coddled criminals. The two made a bit of a petri dish for crime, if you will, in Sin Eater's view, allowing criminals to breed and expand. Criminals walked the streets while Stan Carter's partner rotted beneath the soil. These seem to form a basis which makes sense. So, where does Gene DeWolf fit in? As in, tough as nails, take no guff, police captain. It would seem obvious, but it isn't. It's actually far, far worse. Sin Eater says he killed her just because he felt like it. Now let me pull back the curtain a bit on Stan Carter and Gene DeWolf. Peter David would revisit the Sin Eater in Spectacular Spider-Man issues 134 through 136. In these issues, it is revealed that Stan and Gene, at least according to Stan, were lovers. Again, this is from Stan's mouth, so take it as that, but it makes sense. Sadly, it makes too much sense. Statistically, many murder victims are said to know their killer. And this would fit in not just as a co-worker, but as a figure in Gene's personal life. This would also allow the access to Gene's apartment and explain the killing happening while she slept. And this makes my blood boil. Gene was the easy target. Her defenses were down, she's sleeping, assuming her lover was sane, and he probably post-coital takes advantage of that to aim his gun and shoot her. The priest, Rosenthal, and Jameson were all planned targets, within an agenda to underscore what amounts to Sin Eater's manifesto. Gene DeWolf was a cowardly, cold-blooded test run on somebody who trusted him and cared for him. I don't know that I have enough negative adjectives for this act. And add to that, it shows why Stan was so smug when Spider-Man searched Gene's apartment. Of course, Stan's prints were there, not just as an investigator, but as a lover. And yes, it's a no-prize on a retcon level, but the precinct likely knew something of the relationship, at least in hushed rumors, so they would assume Stan's prints would be expected. More infuriating is the fact that Sin Eater's targets are predicated on those who misuse their power, rather than the results of that misuse. And let me take a moment to clarify, I've been using the term occasionally, abuse of power. Going back and reviewing Sin Eater's statement in issue 108, he does clearly use the term misuse, and that makes a difference. Abuse would be more assertive or proactive. Misuse implies a bit of more incompetence, rather than intent. With that said, Sin Eater has been using the justification that the victims propagated crime by not imposing stricter punishments or enforcement. And in Jameson's case, it's back to the opposition of masked vigilantes. So instead of wiping the streets of criminals in a hardline stance that would make the Punisher blush, Sin Eater is preying on weaker, more defenseless targets. Instead of going all death wish on the underworld, Stan has elected to attack the establishment that he sees as weak, with revolving doors in the jails and rehabilitation aspects. Instead of viewing a crime as an act by a criminal, Stan is seeing the blood of those victims on the hands of 
of the law. And while we are on the topic of Sin Eater and his methods and mindset, let me also add that this is where the concept kind of clicked for me. The Sin Eater concept was an act done after the death of an individual. As we recall that the person would eat food from the, over the chest or the casket of the individual absorbing their sins after they had passed away. While our Sin Eater is killing the people and taking souvenirs in order to achieve something similar through his own twisted logic. The victims are those who allowed criminals to be free, and therefore that blood is on the system's hands. So by removing the element that propagates the crime, the criminal's sins are absolved. The judge's gavels, Jean's badge, I guess, and the unseen trophy taken from the priest, they are symbols of power for the victim, the source of the sin. In his mind, this is like killing the element that draws ants into the house, rather than killing the present ant population. This isn't, strictly speaking, logical. But let's be honest, Sin Eater himself isn't logical either. The more frightening aspect is that there is a bit of this in the other characters in our narrative. Going back to 107 and 108, Peter blamed Matt for letting Mr. Popchick's mugger, still a great children's movie title, walk away. And Mr. Popchick, in turn, blamed the judge. They were blaming the system rather than blaming the muggers themselves. All three are missing the forest for the trees. Taking that a step further, Sin Eater's logic is akin to what I spoke about at length last week, Peter taking the problems of the world on his own shoulders. The blood of the Sin Eater's victims is on Peter's hands from his noble but misguided viewpoint, not the killer himself. And actually at this moment, Peter is on the fence, in a real Vader-Anakin kind of way. The Sin Eater represents a potential path for Spider-Man, based on that core similarity that I discussed. At a very root level, there is a similar point of origin. And choice dictates the path from here. Spider-Man is at that fork where the next choice could lead him to darkness. While Sin Eater is all rage and violence stemming from a flawed system that needs to be put right by any means necessary, including force. Especially by force. Spider-Man's actions with Jablonski showed a real willingness to go down this path in moderation, but there was a willingness. And the rage of Betty Brant being a potential victim? Oh hell. Daredevil, on the other hand, uses extreme belief in the system to allow it to work even with its flaws, a more slow and steady, logical, metered viewpoint. Together, these two are forming the proverbial angel and devil on Spider-Man's shoulders, except the devil's urging calm and rational behavior. And the so-called representative of God is promoting violence, chaos, and the way of the flesh. While we've had a slow burn to this point, the powder keg is going up with Betty's potential death. And this has led to a mix that is nearly a perfect construct to put Spider-Man into a trial by fire. And suddenly we have Spidey's grasp of the concept of power and responsibility put directly on the table to be embraced or utterly destroyed. This isn't the actions and potential victims of a serial killer at stake. It is Spider-Man's soul. And to that end, returning to the story, Betty is fending off the Sin Eater, but not by much. Spider-Man, all rage and fists, bursts through the window and proceeds to beat the sh** out of the Sin Eater. It's a boss entrance and Buckler totally sticks the landing here. The reader just has to stop and say, damn. And then the beatdown begins. It is so hardcore that Betty is more shocked than relieved to see Spider-Man. He's like a rabid dog. Spider-Man is also shocked in a good way that Betty is alive. And this means he has that second chance, but at the same time, he came here with a mind to cold, hard revenge. Peter came here thinking that he was going to have to bury another girl in his life, but instead gets the second chance that he never got with Gwen Stacy. But this is dredging stuff up. All that rage from Gwen and what he expected to find is already driving him to keep hitting the Sin Eater again and again and again. And Sin Eater doesn't help. He takes the wrong tact by pointing out that similarity that I mentioned between himself and Spider-Man, further pissing Peter off. 
Not only does Peter find it offensive in general, but in the back of his mind, he has to probably think that maybe that's true. At least at a subconscious level, he has to see that connection. And let us remember that Spider-Man can lift tons, and I've been corrected on Facebook more than two tons, but multiple tons, and he's not holding back here. Later down the road, we learn that Spider-Man broke Stan's clavicle in his jaw. He also caused permanent inner ear damage and destroyed Stan's knees. Essentially, Stan was busted up to a point on par with a major car wreck. And Stan is down, I need to point this out. Stan's on the ground, he's begging no more. Which draws a good narrative tie back to Mr. Popchick in issue 107. This is what Mr. Popchick was doing when he was getting mugged. But Spider-Man keeps hitting him. Almost like he became the mugger. Remember, Vader-Anakin fence at the moment. Spider-Man has basically gone over the edge. He's lost control. And to compare him once again with Daredevil, Daredevil's power set relies on that focus and control. And he had a mentor that helped him hone that. Spider-Man didn't. Peter is self-taught and from a young age. And those cracks in the armor have just split right open, allowing the rage to spill out. Speaking of Daredevil, he finally shows up and sees Spidey going all River City Ransom on Carter and tries to talk Peter down. Spider-Man voices the admittedly valid concern that Stan could get back up and get back to killing people. By all appearances, Spider-Man is all about ending the sin eater. Daredevil knows how wound up Peter is and he knows he has to stop him. Unfortunately, much like the Sin Eater, Daredevil decides to use the wrong tact. A bit of a theme, maybe? I don't know. Probably not. But Daredevil uses that old cliche. If you want him, you have to come through me. Spider-Man decides to take the dare, and our horned hero takes a one-way trip out of a third or fourth floor window. Daredevil throws insults at Spider-Man, and the wall crawler falls for the bait, since he's so riled up and ready to go. Daredevil makes a run for it, and if this were the age of smartphones, he would likely be looking at his health insurance coverage for superhero beatdowns probably not covered by Matt's HMO. If we're being honest about what's happening here, Spider-Man is having a tantrum. Only when a superhero has a tantrum, it's on a whole new level of berserker rage. And like a child, Spider-Man tells Daredevil that he's had it with the hornhead's mouth, though being calm and cool and collected, Daredevil nails the difference between the two. He states that Daredevil's aim is to supplement the legal system, where Peter is trying to supplant it. And you kind of have to call crap on this, because either way we are dealing with vigilante justice, and we're already on a slippery moral slope or ethical slope. Both Spider-Man and Daredevil catch crooks and usually leave them tied up, which may be one of the biggest leaps in suspension of disbelief within the genre. After all, the crooks don't always have the stolen jewels in their pocket to act as evidence. Sometimes they can come off as simply assault victims. So vigilante justice is already problematic. Uh, It wouldn't necessarily work this way in the real world. However, the line between supplementing and supplanting is a pretty damn thin one when you think about it. One step to the right or left and you've got one or the other. It's a very dangerous idea. But the difference is not only there in the expression of the idea, it's on the page. Daredevil is calm and putting Spider-Man in his crosshairs using strategery. Daredevil uses some sleight of hand and throws one portion of his billy club, distracting Spider-Man while using the other portion to whack Spidey over the head, knocking him out. And as Daredevil is carrying Spidey away, he asks the million-dollar question. Does Spider-Man feel too much, or does Daredevil feel too little? Well, is it that easy? Maybe, but I don't think so. It really can't be that straightforward because, well, let's think about this. Again, we have a pair of characters who are very similar, at least in the starting point. We actually have a trio, but we're talking about Spider-Man and Daredevil here. And we kind of discussed that starting point. Both were bullied. Uh, Matt repressed his anger. Peter snapped back with snarky remarks. And as mentioned, Matt's powers rely on control, while Peter's initially offered an escape. 
When Daredevil confronted the Fixer, it was with strategy and precision. Time had passed, he had sought justice, not revenge. When Spider-Man faced the burglar that killed Uncle Ben, he was upset, angry, sad, and then got the extra dagger to his heart when it revealed that he was the guy that let the burglar walk earlier that day. But I think to really ask the question, does Daredevil feel too little? Does Spider-Man feel too much? I don't think it's that simple, and I think it's played up a little bit more. And all you have to do is look at the reasons that the two remained in costume. Because once the Fixer and the Burglar are off the table, their main reason for starting on this path is essentially done. Neither are Batman who found his parents' killers way down the road. I mean, you have the loss for Spider-Man, which is the whole power and responsibility idea. That's a pretty broad idea. And again, perfectionist Spidey puts it on his shoulders and decides, I'm the only one who can do this. Daredevil, on the other hand, saw that he could make a difference, which kind of echoes that altruism. So to say one feels too much and the other feels too little seems very short-sighted to me. They both feel, they just process those feelings differently. And that's a major, major thing. While the theme is interesting to play with on the page... For just a throwaway, thought-provoking line, at the end of the day, it's not a valid question. It's not that simple. However, both heroes have their limits, just like you or I. Spider-Man just happened to be pushed past his. And we're going to see Daredevil teeter on that edge with Elektra. And we're going to see him pushed way past his edge in Born Again. So my take on the question, Daredevil may have a different perspective and approach, but he feels enough. Sometimes more than enough. He's just more practiced at feeling. So, with the Sin Eater out of commission, you would think that the show is over, right? Bad guy caught, heroes back in control, see you next month for more Spidey action. But no, we have the aftermath. As the media descends, interviewing Betty and Marla, spreading the revelation that Stan Carter is the Sin Eater. And that news is met with extreme reactions. There are angry diners, cops who are shocked, and the public begins to eye the NYPD with suspicion of protecting Stan. These reactions pale in comparison to J. Jonah Jameson and Ned Leeds learning from Peter that Spider-Man saved their wives. It happens at the Bugle the next day after Peter has come to his senses. JJJ is barging around firing people who don't work here and this news renders him speechless and I wish they could just bottle that. While at the Daily Bugle, Peter gets a call from Aunt May letting him know that Ernie Popchick has left the house and taken his World War II era gun with him. Simultaneously, Peter is assigned to take photos to accompany the man on the street interviews regarding the Sin Eater. And while Peter's trying to duck out of the assignment, Robbie plays hardball, so Peter has to go through with the assignment. The consensus of the interviews seem clear. The public doesn't trust the NYPD. Without veering into anything political, it needs to be pointed out, simply for the fact of pointing out that this is something in today's headlines. But while Peter is on the job, Mr. Popchick encounters some muggers on the subway and fires his gun at them, and much like Peter, Popchick has reached his breaking point. Though, what bothers me is this. Was this an act of fear, or did Mr. Popchick seek this out? Was it premeditated? Did he want this to happen? I'm not sure. Either way, it plays with the idea of sin corrupting a person. And by sin, I don't mean the biblical idea, but darkness, um, depravity, things of that nature. Sin Eater corrupting Peter, his victim suffering from corruption of the system, and so on. The theme is very clear, it just doesn't stand out until here. Mr. Popchick just stands out in a different fashion, since he is the prey that may have become the hunter. Another victim, only this one, walks away. Elsewhere, a crowd is gathered at the 37th Precinct, where Stan is about to be transferred to Rikers for his own safety. To say the crowd isn't happy is an understatement. Shall we call it what it is? An angry mob. And they mean business. And while the crowd gathers, the district attorney, police chief, and a S.H.I.E.L.D. representative talk about Stan. Up to now, we've known the who of the Sin Eater. We know the how. But the why turns a lot of that on its ear. 
As we learned, Stan was a former S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, but what we didn't know was that within S.H.I.E.L.D. they experimented on Stan with PCP, and when that experiment was discontinued, Stan got angry. Carter felt that those in authority had toyed with people's lives, and he became violent. A law enforcement agency misusing their power, but through the lens of somebody on a mind-altering chemical who also experienced trauma when his partner was killed. Suddenly, Stan seems like a victim in his own right. Experimented on, cut loose, and not monitored after the experiment. So he snapped. He may have been a good agent, a good man, even a good cop, but he was a victim and that manifested itself in corruption by the sins of others. While that does dredge up just a slight bit of sympathy, the flip side to this is Stan may never see jail time. And that is really, really bad. Let's be frank for a moment. Let's put this out on the table. The victims were a police officer and a woman, a judge who was Jewish, and a priest who was African American. Then the killer is revealed to be a Caucasian cop himself, who may walk free. This is a one-man PR nightmare. The public is already turning on the police. They're blaming them of protecting Stan, and they're becoming violent. So the idea that Stan is going to walk, this is just a match to gasoline. And thankfully, Spider-Man doesn't hear this conversation. We find him on a rooftop watching the crowd get more and more restless. And to tell the truth, so is Spider-Man. Spider-Man is kicking himself for missing all the clues. Now that he's had a chance to cool down, he catalogs them and it stings. He trusted Stan. And the man betrayed him. Hell, he tried to kill Spider-Man. But the question is, with all of this on the table, was this a cry for help from Stan? Was Stan trying to get caught, like Greg did? Who knows? And while he is doing this, Daredevil shows up and reiterates that criminals, even Stan, deserve a right to a trial. Spidey disagrees, but Daredevil breaks it down for him. Since many people think Spider-Man himself is a criminal, if it were him, if he were captured, if he were taken down and in custody, wouldn't he want to be tried in a fair proceeding? Now, of course, this directly calls back to Rosenthal's speech from issue 107 and kind of becomes a bit of Rosenthal's legacy to Matt, and that is poetic. But this discussion kind of gets sidelined. Stan is being taken out the back of the precinct to avoid the crowd, which is on the verge of pitchforks and torches at this point. But while this is a valiant effort, the crowd, which I need to point out includes Jean's father and stepfather, isn't fooled. So they splinter off and they head for Stan. Daredevil jumps in to help, but Spider-Man decides to split. He doesn't get far before Daredevil gets overrun with frothing mad protesters. Desperate, I mean, he is just beset upon. Daredevil just yells out, Peter! which causes the webhead to turn back, and together the heroes are able to subdue the crowd. This allows Stan to be carted off. And while I wanted to be mad at Spider-Man for basically saying, deuces, handle it yourself, I have to think Peter isn't perfect. One of the appeals of Spider-Man is that he is not a perfect character. He's the most human of characters, as you can hear most everybody talk about in the DVD commentaries. As Spider-Man points out, you have Gwen Stacy, Uncle Ben, and now Gene DeWolf his friends and family, taken away by criminals. That's not easy for anybody to process, much less a guy with the mindset of a perfectionist and a superhero. The important thing here is that in the end, Spidey did do the right thing. And this is him overcoming temptation. And the way he did it is that Daredevil's an innocent and pretty decent guy at heart, even if they differ on points. And so is Gene's dad, who is overcome with mourning. There's no need for his life to be ruined and leaving another victim. Peter turning back stops the cycle of corruption. And it's not clear whether any of the parties know it or not. And this is beautiful. Just this one moment, Peter could have left. There could have been more victims, more spread of this sort of sick, depraved mindset that the Sin Eater brought to the table. But no, Peter takes the high road. It's not easy for him. It's not a choice that he wants to make. But because of his innate goodness, overcoming the anger and anguish, 
It ends. Stan's carted off. People save no further victims. He turns back the tide right here, folks. From there, we go to this wrap-up. Daredevil reveals his true identity to Peter, and Matt promises to help Mr. Popchick, and Peter promises to give the system a chance. And I gotta admit, this was an oddly upbeat ending. Emphasis on odd since it isn't so much an ending. As we kind of mentioned, Peter David came back to Sin Eater, Spectacular Spider-Man 134 through 136, so we know kind of how most of this shakes out. Carter does go free and doesn't waste too much time going back to being the Sin Eater. However, in this instance, we see him struggle against what appears to be the alternate personality of the Sin Eater, almost multiple personalities. This struggle and duality ended with the Sin Eater getting shot down by the police, which causes a great revelation that Stan never loaded the shotgun. Almost as if Stan was reaching out and trying to fight against an alternate personality that was oppressive and evil, and in the end he had to set up the death of that personality to be free. Mr. Popchick does get cleared of the charges since nobody was killed, but when the muggers come back for revenge, one of them actually does get shot by a police sniper, and Mr. Popchick leaves after that pretty much utterly destroyed. And Matt and Peter forge a conflicted but rewarding friendship. However, this very conflict... The idea of the system of criminals not getting the punishment comes back again in the gang war storyline. And while most of the corruption I talked about, the spread of it was stopped by Peter making that choice, there is one little trickle. Mr. Greg, Carter's neighbor, who was captured last issue, goes on record saying he is the Sin Eater, despite the facts going against it. One reporter runs the story, making it sound like this has been a farce injustice. However, it is revealed to be a sham, and that reporter is disgraced and run out of the industry by Peter Parker. Luckily, that reporter found a nice little symbiote. That's right, we're talking Eddie Brock. Eddie Brock's downfall and his eventual rise to venom starts with the Sin Eater, piggybacking off of this in David Michelini's Amazing Spider-Man. So Sin continues to corrupt. And maybe with that, there's a validity to the Sin Eater's mindset, not his actions, but the idea that it spreads, it's a Petri dish. And that really stands out with everything. Boldly, it just stands right out. Nothing was really fixed. Carter won't face justice, Popchick's story ends in sadness, and Gene DeWolf is still dead. Sometimes we can only cope with the aftermath of our trials. In the real world, there's no spinning the earth on its axis. While that last moment is upbeat, the darkness still looms over it. The story leaves the reader with a lot to chew on by posing more questions than it really answers, which grounds it in reality. One of the main questions becomes, what is justice? And luckily, the story accepts that this is a very subjective question, and maybe more so for superheroes. And that could lead to a lot of people feeling that this wasn't as satisfying a conclusion as it could be for the overall story. True, there are a lot of themes playing here, weaving their way through the story, and they aren't wrapped up in a nice, neat bow at the end. Despite that, and the fact that the villain essentially gets away, we get a victim in Popchick who becomes the victimizer, a mirror of Stan. If there's an overall theme, it is that corruption of sin. S.H.I.E.L.D. corrupted Stan, who corrupted Peter and Popchick. Conversely, there's also an undercurrent of potential redemption. Peter overcomes the temptation, and Daredevil remains above it, which leads to my bone of contention. Matt's detachment, and I've commented on this a little bit, but again, Matt is an emotional man. He controls it, or better said, he filters it in the same way that he filters his senses, but he is not dull to it. Is there a certain degree of detachment? Certainly, part of his profession is detachment. But Matt follows his emotions. It's why he is Daredevil. 
The altruism, the passion that he brings to the courtroom, even his friendships. Matt is a man, and he is a man with a heart, which is why he puts on the red suit and fights bad guys, as well as loading up a briefcase and defending the innocent. There is a process, and that concept gets muddled a bit in the story. But Daredevil is a guest here. It doesn't really excuse it. It kind of explains it. He's not the main event. He's there to provide that contrast to Peter Parker. But at the same time, I think it's led to a good discussion over these last four episodes. Even if the detachment is amplified, it does play well into the character exploration, even if it's a bit misguided. It isn't egregious enough to completely obscure a good story, it's just an annoyance. And of course, in terms of art, Buckler gave us a gritty take, which was distinctive and against all odds was helped by the multiple inkers. It has a distinctive feel for a Spider-Man tale and almost an indie comic look. In the end, the story and the art succeeded in giving us a story right off the front page, today as well as in the 80s and felt a bit more French connection than standard superhero tale. That's why the tale remains in print. It never stooped to over-the-top theatrics, and we saw the heroes come out on top with a few scars and a change in their views. It's a solid read from beginning to end. It isn't perfect, but I fully recommend it. And that's going to wrap up our detour into Spider-Man Country. I'm going to take a quick break and play a promo for Supermates, the husband and wife podcast hosted by Chris and Cindy Franklin, and then I will be back with listener email. It lives. Master, it's night again. Beautiful, dark, silent night. With the fog creeping in. Time for you to awaken, Master. Time for you to go out. Something terrible has happened. You dared open the bar door. Believe me when I say that what you're doing places yourself and the rest of your party in the gravest danger. Inside lie monsters greater than your worst nightmares. They were all evil in life and remained evil after death. And now the terror is loose upon the podcasting world again. It's not in my power to help you. You're the only one that understands. Nobody else in the world will believe me. This September and October, dare to visit Supermates' estates and walk the halls in this hall of horror, this abode of angst. Return to the House of Frankenstein. Legends of classic horror spread their evil, but fear not. Your favorite heroes are here to challenge them. Do me a favor, Shaggy. Stay down. Guess not. Beware these masters of the macabre. Bella Lugosi. Your fate is to be what you are. But mine is to be what I am. Lon Chaney Jr. There's a curse upon me. I change into a wolf. Christopher Lee. I am come unto thee, O Osiris, who art cleansed of all impurities. Peter Cushing. Consequences? That sounds like a threat. And Ingrid Pitt. You must die! Everybody must die! The Supermates Comic.blogspot.com production. 
coming soon to an iTunes near you. Return to the house of Frankenstein. They are just dying to greet you. All right, true believers, I am back. Before wrapping up this week, I have a quick email by way of listener Shane Graves who dropped me a line entitled, The Podcast. Actually, they had an exclamation point, so maybe it's The Podcast! Either way, Shane's email goes thusly. Hello Dave, I found your DD podcast just this past weekend. I'm dropping you this email to say it's fantastic. Your level of detail in your reading of and commenting on of Daredevil the Comics the Show is awe-inspiring. I feel like I blow through an issue way too fast now and you've made me want to go back and reread all my comics, as well as going forward and pay more attention. I'm firing through the episodes all spot on. Here's a thanks Dave, random Shane. Thank you very much, Shane. Uh, you know, you really made me blush here. First off, I'm, I'm really glad you dig the show. I really do appreciate it, and I do try to examine every comic as much as possible. Every now and then I miss something, and that's what I live with. It's my gift, it's my curse. And if your detail is your game, I gotta say, upcoming episodes, specifically next week, is gonna be a mind blower. I'll just tease them a bit by saying research for this show can take you to some odd places. But in all seriousness, I do appreciate the kind words, Shane. I hope you continue to enjoy the show and feel free to drop me a line anytime. And that goes for the rest of you listeners as well. Remember, the email address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. And I do have some more email for next week, which kind of brings me to the topic of what's happening with next week. It is episode 75, originally slated to be Electra. Well, plans changed. I found myself stymied by that episode, and I think I know why. I think the massive amount of research I did and just the number of notes I had made it incredibly hard to focus into a single episode. So I thought about splitting it into two episodes, but I didn't want to do that. So the Electra episode, I'm taking it off the chart right now. It will be at some point, probably when we cover issue 190, what I'll do is just bring those notes back in and filter them into that episode. And that's right, I mentioned 190. Next week, things get bumped up, and we will be covering Miller's run once again, picking up where we left off with issue 182, which has a certain degree of frustration for me, but, you know, if you like detail... This is one you're going to want to listen to. Oh yeah, and there's going to be a special guest. And did I mention I'll be discussing the Punisher within the episode? So yeah, one week from now, be back here at twotruefreaks.com. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. You can find the show's home at twotruefreaks.com. Also, choose to like the network on Facebook. Simply search for Two True Freaks. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash daveweeder. And you can email the show. The address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf. And you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. 
If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and keep the lights on at 2TrueFreaks at the same time. What a deal. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright Marvel Entertainment Group. All rights reserved. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not draw profit from the references to the characters herein. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes. All rights lie with the copyright holder. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a production of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Until next time, I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.